If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 15 years ago, the idea of content marketing, social media marketing, and all these things were brand new. It was just sales. You had people, I mean, to go, maybe go a bit further, the old Glengarry, Glen Ross, you know, always be closing. You know, that is not the world of sales anymore. No one does that. And the, the world of talent will go here. It just requires a lot of education training. Hi, good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm doing very well, Peter. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. As those that listen to this podcast quite regularly will understand, the way that I like to start the discussions is generally driven around like your background, your motivations, your beliefs. So kind of with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, what are the factors that have driven you to do the work that you do today? Sure. I think about this a lot and actually spend a lot of time talking to our, our team about this as well. I think that a few things coalesced. I moved to the UK when I was 10. Uh, I was born in a place called uh, Dagestan, which is in uh, southern Russia. It's an autonomous republic that's uh, uh, now mostly known for its uh, UFC fighters and Olympic wrestlers. Uh, but m- moved to the UK with my parents and, and my younger brother, Selzin, who's uh, my co-founder, actually, in the, in the business. And you know, we had very little i remember my mum and i would go to the shop to buy tesco value 13p bread and you know nine pence canned peach slices because that's what we could afford and it meant that my brother and i always had to kind of scramble to find ways of you know making pocket money i remember i had to lie to the news agent uh to tell them i was 13 when i was actually 11 to get a paper round because child labor laws means you can't work until you're 13 in, in the uk and you know we would import speakers from japan we would set up the school tuck shop and so all of these things we didn't think we were entrepreneurs we were just thinking we were <laughs> trying to find ways of making money and uh, and surviving which uh, kind of brought my brother and i uh, very close together and you know we've been doing things together ever since i think the second vector was when at university i think both of us were fortunate or unfortunate enough to be kind of graduating during the financial crisis or just in there or just after. And most of our friends didn't get jobs. Most people who had these high-flying dreams of going into finance or consulting suddenly didn't get the jobs that they were dreaming of. And three years later, when the economy recovers, there's new graduates. And so those people have now missed their opportunities. And 
The second piece was, why would you go and work in finance? Why is that the career that uh, every graduate dreams of or was dreaming of in the kind of mid-2000s? And the answer is partially because that's who come on camp- comes on campus and partially because that's who has good training programs and good recruiting and good intake. And it kept swirling this idea around for us of there's a lot of bias, there's a lot of privilege, there's a lot of inefficiency and ineffectiveness in the way that the career ladder and the way that uh, people get given opportunity. And coupling that with our, our own experiences and you know, seeing my parents struggle to get jobs, which they were vastly overqualified for just because they you know, didn't have a visa or something else. And all of this culminated in this kind of big dream for us that uh, we wanted to help solve the the birthplace lottery in a way upon has the biggest impact on your earning potential, your livelihood. And you, know, you don't do that by banging the fist on the table. You do that by creating different ways of access to work, access to education, access to healthcare. And so we've been building the company on this kind of singular mission of uh, getting the career and the job and the opportunities you deserve should be a basic human right. And so how do we make employers make that a basic human right uh, because it's not about governments, it's about how companies actually treat talent. So that's a, it's a long answer to uh, <laughs> to that short question. No, no, but it's good because you, you mentioned something that I'm intrigued to explore a bit more and that's the element of bias because like in the UK, for example, is the north-south divide that people talk upon. You you also mentioned in respect to campus recruiting as well, and you know this kind of natural pipeline that if you go to kind of and like Oxbridge, then you kind of naturally re- rewarded with respect to um, the careers that you know and opportunities that are put in front of you. But not everybody not necessarily in respect to intellect, go to Oxbridge, go to either Oxford or Cambridge. They go to other universities because, you know, if they're from the North, they may not want to kind of go too far away from home. Um, Other people may not be able to afford it. And you've got a multitude of different factors that drive that. So in in respect, there becomes a wider problem as to are are the nets for talent really being cast as far as they should? So what would you say in respect to this kind of problem of bias and how how would you go about countering it that's a it's a big question and obviously what one people worry about a lot I, I, and i think maybe to just expand a little bit on what, on what you're saying you know the uh, bias is in many ways well i think in always kind of a, a human condition right and a human problem uh but you know without going too far into the ai piece immediately anything that's humans code obviously codes in bias into that. So the way that we thought about approaching this is how does one evaluate and create opportunity for people that is based on ultimately the contribution they can make and their potential rather than their names, obviously skin colors, genders, educations, and all these things. And I think that the there's lots of organizations that are working on you know how to create uh, access to opportunity in the kind of pre-university and post-university stage but i think what some of the interesting biases that that are often overlooked uh, as you're saying is you know people often talk about gender or ethnicity bias i have a uh, arabic sounding name and uh, many times when i've gone to meet somebody they assumed my skin color would be different to what my skin color actually is and that is bias right and you know, if you're John Smith from the North, people don't assume that you've had a hard life. People don't assume that you've uh, actually not had the same opportunities as somebody growing up in London may have had. And so I think a lot of bias is associated with uh, stereotypes, right? And so the 
thing that we've been working on for the last decade is how to help organizations switch to a people and potential model rather than a um, do you fit my job description, you know, square peg, square hole model. And technology can go a certain step of that way. You know, it is around nudging. It is around. Uh, so one of the ways we often explain it to our customers is, I don't know if you if you play video games, but you know when you create a video game character and you have this like skill tree, and only after that do you go and create. You know, what do they look like? And so what we've been trying to do is, in many ways, kind of turn the talent experience into, well, first you need to decide what you need and what outcomes you need and what skills and proficiencies and levels you need. And only then do you go searching for it. And only then do you kind of discover how how you can create that and where that's going to come from, uh, rather than starting with, you know, I need somebody that looks like this. And by looks like it, I mean physically. I meant there's a pattern recognition of, well, the guy or girl that did this job last year was this, and therefore I need that again, rather than starting from a zero based of, well, the world has changed, the company has changed, the requirements have changed. Where do I find that? And then the other piece is around, uh, which is also often missing, in fact, almost always missing, is seeking potential because people are lines rather than dots. Just because you're doing a job today uh, doesn't mean you either want to do it tomorrow or can do it tomorrow. And a really, really good example of this is um, within software engineering. So the typical mistake often say recruiters would make is they'd look at their software engineer's resume and say, oh, you've got 10 years experience in C++. I've got the C++ job. And the engineer would say, that was 10 years ago. I now do Java. And the recruiter also, but you've only got one year experience with Java. And the engineer would say, yes, and I want more. Right. And so the ability to look in the rearview mirror doesn't apply to human careers. And humans generally are very bad at forecasting. And so being able to help with that, and that's kind of where some of the bias uh, gets reduced is to say, this person that you don't think looks right over six months, 12 months, 18 months actually will look right for what you need. Yeah, it's, and it's, you know, that, that whole like years experience versus like reality is, is quite key because you look at how technology is evolving and you look at the likes of the blockchain or metaverse or, or Web3 and like you can't really turn around and say like, oh, well, you've only got like X amount of years experience because it's, it's evolving, it's new. And, um, you know, that's the thing where kind of, yeah, you need to look beyond and look what's, what's current to make sure that people are, are in the right fit for positions and um, you can c- take advantage of it really. You know, in respect to Beamery, it's also worthwhile giving a, a higher level you know, overview of what you guys do and why. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so passionate about, about the people topic. Uh, it, it's very easy for me to kind of lose track of that. Uh, obviously, I haven't really explained what we do. So my brother and I and our CTO, Michael, who's um, an old friend of ours, we started Beamery just under 10 years ago, actually. And, you know, on that, on that big vision uh, mission that we talked about with access to careers, what we actually do is we've been building a technology platform uh, that has multiple strata. But what it does uh, on a kind of very layperson terms is moves the HR and talent function from being very administrative, which is kind of what's existed over the last 20, 30 years. You know, you have payroll admin, you have benefits admin, you have 
kind of general kind of employee administration, which is a necessary thing to do, but it's not very strategic. It doesn't tell you what will happen. It doesn't tell you how I'm going to reach my business objectives, goals, potential, how I treat my people differently, how I give them the opportunities. It's all very much you know, ticking boxes and making sure people get paid, people have their holidays, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we set out to do was create something that doesn't replace that, but actually creates new capabilities for a very strategic talent function. So that is a capability around having very, very good data. So for example, one of the big things that a lot of HR leaders come to us and they say, my data is terrible. You know, I don't even know, some don't even know how many employees they have, but that's not most, but that is some. But they would say, uh, all the people that applied for jobs for us in the last three years, we don't use that at all because it's old data. Um, we don't know who the contractors are versus the employees versus the alumni. And so everything is out of date and very, very messy. And so if, you, if you're able to solve the kind of data quality problem, and then on top of that, you can start building new ways of working. So for example, we had this penny drop moment when we first started of all of this innovation that's happened on the customer side. You know, you have Salesforce.com, you have Marketo, you have all these other tools. Why can't we treat talent like customers? And why don't they exist in the in the customer? Sorry, in the talent side. So why is there no relationship management tools, marketing tools, talent success tools? And there weren't any, so we built them. And so we've essentially created this kind of go-to-market stack of uh, applications that sit on top of this data layer that allow for organizations to say, I'd love to run new campaigns. I'd love to uh, create an experience that isn't just click here to apply, but actually starts building relationships, invites people to events, creates kind of personalized messaging and content, you know, email marketing, SMS, and all these things on the attraction side. And then that moved on to the engagement and retention piece, which is once you're in the organization, uh, the journey doesn't end. Uh, a company, a modern organization, we felt needs to be very proactive around creating opportunities for retention. It's around career pathing, it's around growth, it's around doing gigs, it's around recruiters being able to recruit internally as well as externally. And a lot of that comes together with what we believed the modern talent organization should look like. It shouldn't be HR and recruiting, it should be people. And the modern people function starts actually not just with all of these kind of attraction and retention pieces, it's actually with planning. So most CHROs I speak to will say, my biggest problem is a CEO has told me, this is my three-year business objective. You know, we need to build a car faster than Tesla. How do I execute that? And the execution of that is the kind of talent plan that leads to build business objective. And the reality is today we only have financial planning. There's a financial plan of what it will cost to do something, but there's not a a plan of what skills and capabilities I need in my company over the next two, three, four, five years, and how do I acquire them? How much of that is going to come from internal building of my people versus recruiting versus contractors? And the reality is that changes daily because the people you were planning to promote may have left, the people that you were planning to recruit are now too expensive. So the ability to do this as dynamic planning, execution of attraction through to retention, and then the data model that underpins all of that. So in short, this is not a very short answer, but in, in short, Beamery is an enterprise software company, um, and we uh, have been creating a, a new category in strategic talent management. And, but that's, it's, it's crucial as well at this point in time, because let's, let's look at overarching the brand impact of a poor talent pipeline. First and foremost, not every company, but a lot of companies, their TAs don't talk to HR. The data you mentioned that they like they retain, if at all they retain it, is often just in a spreadsheet and just left. They don't know what to do with it. And that has 
and a wider impact because when it comes to being proactive versus reactive, if a hiring manager turns around to you and say, oh, we need to hire X amount of people, the first and foremost thing that they, they generally do is reach out to external agencies and then there's a fee cost within that in respect to how much it's going to charge. And they overlook what is already available to them, which is existing data. And within that is people that have chosen to apply to you for as a company because they believe in your brand and reputation, they believe in your values, et cetera. And it's been overlooked. And, you know, there's many case studies that show where actually this has a detrimental impact both inside and out of an organization. I'll talk about like Vodafone, for example, as, a, as an old case study, but um, it's a known one. And, you know, that that led to actual loss of business. And if you kind of look at the wider impacts, like, what do you believe is the resistance between that shifting from like a selling of, of, of a person um, for a hiring process to more of an engaging process in respect to like people collaborate, they talk to one another, they utilize data and may think more towards the bigger picture? Because at the end of the day, there's that reputational impact and that's the crux. Like if you get it wrong, everybody gets frustrated. And yeah, at the end of the day, that's, we need to be moving beyond that. So rather than reactive, proactive. You're 100% spot on. I think that the um, the friction point is always um, kind of human paradigms. In order to do what you describe, which is where the market is going, it just takes years, not days, is everyone in the organization needs to feel partially or entirely responsible to, to participate. So I'll give you an example. To, to do what you describe, and this is kind of how we advise our clients, you need to start thinking six to 12 months in advance. So for example, if uh, you as a hiring manager say, look, I'll probably need these kinds of capabilities in my organization in nine to 12 months time. So let's start pipelining them now. Let's start meeting those candidates now. Let's start engaging them in uh, ways that are not, do you want to apply for a job, but let's invite them to an event. Let's have a webinar. Let's have chats with them. Think about the way that a consumer marketing organization uh, treats clients. And so actually one, one of my favorite questions to ask in, in boardrooms is, can you name the last time you purchased a product through an ad, social media ad, email marketing ad, and everyone has, right? And so, so the, the corollary question is, these companies know what you might want to buy next, and they're targeting you and not just aggressively buy this, right? They are creating a relationship and a set of messaging that ultimately leads for you to become a client. Can any of you in this room name one, two, maybe five companies which where you could see yourself working? Well, maybe these are dream jobs. Maybe this is something you're like, you just really respect the brand. Maybe you've always wanted to work for SpaceX or Coca-Cola or something else, right? And usually people will have, you know, one or two companies that are like, oh yeah, I, I love this brand. You know, I'd love to work there. And then the next question is, do they know that about you? And the answer is no. Why don't they know that? Why have you not got a relationship with this brand that you could see yourself working at? And that's kind of the crux of the problem, right? Is that both on both sides, that is not something that is a typical way of engaging. And historically, getting a job has been incredibly transactional. To make it not transactional requires work, requires work by the hiring managers, the uh, recruiting teams, the HR teams, all of these people need to do their jobs differently. And that takes training. It takes training. And if you think of you know, how other sectors evolved, 15 years ago, the idea of content marketing, social media marketing, and all these things were brand new. It was just sales. You had people, I mean, to kind of maybe go a bit further, the old Glengarry, Glen Ross, you know, always be closing. You know, that is not 
the world of sales anymore. No one does that. And the, the world of talent will go here. It just requires a lot of education. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And I guess like one of the key parts of the education is looking at the past two years, because like over the last two years, everything has changed as, as we know it forever from in respect to employees are more focused on like well-being, training, their own career development, while corporations are being pushed and pulled into a, a new like form of doing business that's, be, that's above and beyond profit. And it's, it's more about actually standing for sustainable mission um, having a purpose. And, and this is all very apparent. And, and I guess like the challenge that, that we have in respect to the communication piece is that the existing platforms that we utilize, like not everybody is willing to be that engaging, is willing to be that open because we've shifted away from, you know, you talk about sales, like I don't believe in sales. And I'll say that because I think if you engage with people correctly, then you don't even need to sell. People come towards what you're doing because they believe in you and that you can form that trusted relationship and you can you can build a lot from the basis of the advocacy of others in respect to what you do rather than kind of banging on doors. But if you kind of look at that piece, what do you believe is the central problem behind this, the sloth of realization for companies and maybe a potential employees realizing that they have to build that that process of engagement with companies that they truly want to work for and likewise vice versa like the, the philosophical answer to this is uh, inertia exists everywhere my, my, i guess before before going directly to the talent side you know living in in the uk uh, you would have also experienced the uh, the nhs lack of it issue Right. We've been, we were told that it would take over a decade to be able to even get uh, online bookings for GP appointments. Suddenly, within three months of COVID starting, it happened. And so I think what has been a hazard of saying wonderful, but I think what, a, what has been a great impact of a pandemic on 
the corporation is it has moved and accelerated what was currently going at a glacial pace around the recognition of what the company needs to be to people and the and the role of the of the organization in people's lives. And if you look kind of slightly further back, it's not just about employment, it's about how employment fits into um, the everyday rhythm of, of human existence. And you know, 50 years ago, when you know you worked at Ford for 30 years, you came home, you had your church, you had your community, you had all of these other things. For many people, especially as countries are becoming more secular, those things don't exist anymore. So the employer uh, starts filling a lot of the pastoral functions um, and not just the uh, uh, here's your paycheck function. And now when you're in people's homes and people don't check their briefcase at the door, you're now pervasive into the entire life, not just the what somebody does physically in the office. And so employers that I think have embraced this sooner, where you are recognizing that you're responsible for people's physical health, for people's mental health, for people's well-being on, on all fronts, and ensuring that not only do you care, but actually you're putting in place something that creates a great environment for people to succeed and work and understanding that that environment differs by people. And we've known for decades that children learn differently and you need to create bespoke learning environments for different children. Why are we so surprised that people work differently? Right, that it shouldn't be shocking, but also the recognition that uh, it is a mutual relationship. I think what's often Quite challenging is when pendulum swings too far in different directions. And I think what we were starting to see probably about six to 12 months ago uh, amongst the, the different employers that we, we speak to is naturally when the pendulum swings too far, people start saying, well, what's in it for me? What should I get? What do I want? And often forgetting that you need to think about the teams you work with. It's not what's in it for me. It's how do I make my colleagues and myself more effective and more productive and think of the kind of the greater whole. And I think that that's kind of part of the evolution of, uh, of this trajectory because the, the inertia also comes from various layers of senior management who have been very quickly had their hands slapped. You know, you'll probably remember this one. People said, no, we're going back to the office. And suddenly yeah. there was revolting in the streets. Right. So I think that the, the human reaction has quickly course corrected, I think. Yeah, I, I try not to laugh at that, but it's it's true because it's um, you know like like without naming companies' names, there was this apparent attempt to shift back to the norm, and it's impossible to do so. And we see this reflected in things like the Great Resignation. And um, you know, I've talked in previous podcasts about the Great Resignation, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it too. But personally, I believe, as I've said before, that it's a period of great awakening. We're we're seeing what we want from life. We're aligning that to how we believe and and um, want to kind of have that relationship would work and everything's changed. So, you know, you mentioned being held accountable. The great resignation is a great example because in America, like millions left their their roles um, after Professor Anthony Klotz came out and said that the great resignation is coming in Bloomberg. And not long after, I think it was about July, September time in the UK, 1.1 million people left their roles in the UK. Like it's a, it's a known fact. It's a known problem. And how do you believe companies can counter that? I mean, what, what's what's interesting is before going into the the counter piece, I think it's important to look at the kind of general macro of of that environment. The economic growth in many kind of Western economies has continued uh, on a positive trend uh, over the, over the course of the um, the last twenty four months. 
So there are more jobs, right? The organizations have been moving uh, very much into improving and advancing uh, and accelerating their kind of digital transformation agendas. And so there is a change in skill sets. There's more people entering the workforce. And with all of that, when you kind of dig one step deeper into the great resignation, people aren't leaving the workforce. People are just playing musical chairs. And so if every organization, you know, let's use a uh, apocryphal number, experiences 50% attrition, that means people have just changed around on the jobs, right? And th- there's two sets, components to it. One is the why and one is the what does it do? I'll come back to the why in a second. But what does it do is interesting because it means that if so much of the workforce is new in their role, the ramp up time, the upskilling time of learning that job and doing that job and being effective in that job means the organization's productivity goes down. So actually the further impact that this will have is a reduction in outcomes and outputs for the organizations and actually potentially lower GDP growth across the board because that's when you have everyone is new in every company, even though the, all of them have had jobs before, the, the lack of productivity will be found. The why is actually very interesting because we spent a lot of time on this. And there's a, a few kind of buckets of factors that uh, at least all of our research has shown. The resignation is much more acute with people newer in the workforce than those that are, have had jobs for a while. And when you double click on that further, uh, a lot of the common reasons people give, I think more than two thirds of, of the people that have left or are planning to leave, it's around two things. One is the feeling that they are not being invested in and growing in the organization. And then the other is a lack of connection to their employer because it's all been remote. And so both of these are actually very interesting about fully remote versus non-remote and kind of the, the inputs. And then when you kind of, again, dig slightly further, fully remote is hard because a lot of managers have never been trained in being remote-only managers. So when people are saying, I don't feel invested in, it's often because the, the skills are missing in the organization to invest and to build those relationships. And we as humans, I guess, both evolutionarily and through corporate practice, haven't learned and haven't been taught how to be as effective at building relationships and upskilling people in a remote environment. Not all, obviously, some companies are very successful doing this, but we have suddenly gone from zero to hero and are then surprised that people aren't very good at this. And then the other element is around when you've never physically met people, feeling really, really connected to the culture is hard, not impossible, but really, really hard. And so I think what we're starting to see is some reactions from organizations. One is a non-platitude way of investing in physical and mental health. You know, it's not about here's a mental health webinar and here's a subscription to, you know, a meditation app. It's what, what is actually going to meaningfully make a difference. The other is really investing in manager training to make sure people are creating the right uh, progression and career opportunities for, for folks so that it's not just left to its own devices. I think the third is many companies we're seeing are starting to create ways of bringing people together, even if they're remotely employed, to build that kind of personal connection spark, um, especially as you know, mass mandates and all these things are starting to open up. But actually, while maintaining flexibility, because uh, back to the point you were just making, it's not about 
one or the other. It's around having a very good understanding of what makes people effective, which is sometimes bringing them together, sometimes letting them do quiet work in various places, giving them choice. And I think all of these, there's no silver bullet, right? But all of these things together have a, have a big impact. It's about taking time to care about each individual employees and their own desired needs and, and expectations. And, you know, when, you, when you're when you able to do that, then you can become more effective in, internal to an organization as well. And that kind of, you know, that whole piece of retention of talent, because that's, that's another challenge as well. It's not just attracting talent and taking them through the talent pipeline, but it's also retaining them as well. You know, in the work that you do, like I read that you were doing kind of quarterly surveys with 5,000 workers across the UK. And, you know, you mentioned statistics like 64% of respondents feel more pressure to work when sick. 49% believe that there's a lack of one-to-one or face-to-face with employees over the last 12 months. And 60% believe that the work from home has had an impact on their personal development and progression, whilst 85% believe it's important for their company to help in respect to their growth and progression. There's an abundance of other statistics. And I'll leave some also on the link in the description. But there's also the, the other element that taking my experience from working in gaming, you know, like not everybody is a people manager. And as people kind of progress up the, the ladder per se, you know, there's the natural expectation that they should have a number of people that kind of report into them. And then there's the expectations of performance development and stuff. But within like my time at EA, for example, we, we, we saw this as a, as a, as a known issue. So we had like very different roles in respect to kind of people managers and technical managers. And so you can kind of develop people individually based on their own aspirations, desires, and needs. And in, in respect to that, then you, you create more of a rounded workforce in respect to talent. And there's also the ability to um, utilize people's skills and kind of create diverse workforces and shift them into new roles and move them around an organization to get, get them, you know, not only more skills and more, um, you know, like a rounded ability with regards to their own development but you give them opportunity to work with new people and that can create new ideas and new innovation and so it's it's just looking at the fact that if you create mechanisms that are people first then you have so much scope for development and you know that kind of moves me on to the the usage of ai versus kind of existing mechanisms because i, I guess one of the one of the prominent challenges that i hear from people that are like going through a recruitment process at the moment they, there's a lack of engagement, you know, like people submit applications for roles and they kind of get on a Sunday evening, like a rejection email through or whatever it may be that just says, oh, sorry, we won't be moving you forward in this. How do we create better levels of engagement between prospective employees and employers above and beyond what some companies are doing extremely well at the moment? I'll name them. So like Lego in respect to the work that they're doing, you know, Ubisoft, both are doing fantastic things in, in respect to their support for workers and also the wider society in respect to Russia and Ukraine. But how do we create at that kind of at that talent level, at that talent acquisition, at that HR level, that better dialogue between prospective employees and also the employer themselves, rather than kind of the the, the issues that I've mentioned that people are feeling? And so it's a really good question. The, the way I unpack that is um, the kind of the different stakeholders involved. So you mentioned at the end there around people not hearing uh, when they apply for jobs. That is a fairly easily solvable problem through automation and uh, personalization. So for example, 
some of the reasons that that happens is just you know an overwhelming amount of applications for say one recruiter to process right but being able to make their lives and jobs easier by saying you know of the people that have applied you know a very an easier way to understand who you haven't responded to what would you like to respond how can you screen them easier and this is before you kind of introduce any form of recommendation or anything else right but it's you know but back to the point we're making about the commercial or the support organizations this has been solved very well by you know support or customer success or elsewhere like imagine sending an email to you know, a company that uh, you buy products from and them not responding for two weeks, uh, right? Like that would be something that people would explode on Twitter about and saying how, how terrible that experience is. So it's clearly solvable with tools. And, and so that's kind of the first part. The, the second part is actually uh, more nuanced around uh, a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And they don't know what's possible and what's available for them. And so I think where machine learning can be much more impactful than just you know automation or chatbots or all these things which are obviously useful but to an extent is helping people see inference about their potential so for example we have a one client which you know employs north of a million people actually and they talk to us about how so many of their employees don't know what is possible for them because they might sometimes come from underprivileged backgrounds or they have done you know jobs that uh, they don't necessarily know lead to other jobs and so being able we actually built this uh, as part of our product suite but being able to say from where you are and where you have come from based on the experiences that you've had these are the things that are possible and in order to make them possible you know you can acquire this skill by doing this or you can take this gig or you can go and take this course but actually showing people what their careers can look like and empowering them to go and say yes i'd like to do that now there's a lot of stats around the impacts that this has between between kind of different genders and different ethnicities you know there's a data around how often women will only apply for jobs where they think they match all the criteria and breaking down some of these boundaries and biases is one thing but the other is actually showing people the the potential impossible and so ai has a big capacity and capability to make uh, the inference and the career progression and the the seeking of opportunities and actually seizing those opportunities very very possible and you talk about the potential impossible, and that kind of leads me into my final question. Like, in your respect, like looking at the growth of Beamery, like how far do you believe you can grow? What's the what's on the horizon? What what are your key kind of focus areas, and and what do you want to achieve in the coming years? Uh, sure, I think there's um, there's a few parts to this. I truly believe in in the long term mission of what we're doing, and you know I really want this organization to exist for a long time. I think in order to do that, we need to create a business that is able to practice what we actually preach. Uh, you know, have great talent acquisition, great talent development, great manager training, great succession planning, and so I think that you know we're on track to to build this new category. Uh, you know, what I say to our teams a lot is. We know we're winning when you know, Fortune 500 CEOs are saying we run talent on Beamery, right? But that doesn't mean we've, we're done. It just means that we've started winning. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd really love to build an enduring company that exists way after I don't exist. Nice. No, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed chatting to you. So thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.